Why were we put here? I think everyone wants to know, why were we put here? Why are we on earth? Let me put it this way. I, I, like, I like to think that God is real. The sun makes its course. I believe it's random. I don't think there's a plan. For all we know, there could be aliens out there. I, I have no idea, to be honest. There's so many things where it's just like, like that has to have someone, something behind it. I would say that God put this curiosity in all of our hearts. I don't think it's, it's a bad thing that we, we look at other options and look down other roads to try to figure out exactly why we're here or what our purpose is in life. Welcome once again to Christ Church. As Anson said, my name is Ben. I'm the campus pastor here at our Lake Forest campus. And what we're going to be doing for the next seven weeks is we're going to be addressing these types of questions that you see in that video. And they're, they're questions that, in some sense, every uh, religious claim, every faith tradition has to answer questions like these. And so we're going to be joining 800 churches across Chicago um, in doing this. And we're hoping, that, uh, we're hoping that some new people join us. And as we thought about this series months and months ago, um, Mike said, I want us to introduce this the first week of January by looking at 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, which is a passage in the New Testament that talks about giving a reason or a defense for why it is that uh, you believe what you believe and why it is that you hold the hope that you have more specifically. So that's what we're going to be doing this morning. We're going to be in 1 Peter um, chapter 3. And before we uh, turn there and kind of introduce the series that's coming, I want to tell you a quick story. Um, we got a book for Christmas. It's called The Gospel Comes with a House Key. And it's a lady named Rosaria Butterfield. And she goes around and talks about and shares the role that hospitality has in current day American society. And in a day when there's so much loneliness, that hospitality has become sort of a, a featured aspect of the Christian faith that uniquely um, tells the story of Christianity. And as she was doing this, her, she and her husband speak together regularly, and so they were going to speak at one of these churches. And so on their way, she describes in this chapter, she says that uh, we got the kids all loaded up with their little toys, put them in the car. We pulled the frozen peanut butter out of the freezer and put it in a Kong and gave it to the golden retrievers before we left, so they're happy. We go off and we speak at this church, and everything goes great. We tell people about hospitality, how to love the stranger, how to invite people in fantastic, everything went well. We drive home, we open the door, and as soon as we open the door, we realize something's wrong. Because when we open the door, what happens is our little hyper, effervescent golden retriever dog meets us and greets us and is so excited to see us. But this time we walk in, and he's cowering in the corner, and he looks like he's hurt, and something's wrong. And then they enter into the kitchen, and they see that there's been a crowbar come through a window, and all of a sudden, they walk around the house, and they've been completely burglarized. So the china's been destroyed. Every cabinet inside the house has been opened and ripped out. All the, all the drawers upstairs, there's clothes in the ground. The sacred family jewelry, everything that they own that's heirloom-oriented has been taken away. TV's ripped off the wall. Absolutely traumatic experience for them and for their kids. And in the middle of that, she's asking the question, where is it in a moment like that that you go to find hope? Where is it that you and I, as we enter 2019... In the middle of challenges and pain specifically, where is it that you can find hope? And the reason I start with that story is because First Peter, when Peter's writing this letter to the, 
to the people on the other end of this church. They actually are going through a very difficult time themselves. So they're in the middle of suffering. They're in the middle of persecution. Uh, historically, there's some Roman rulers at the time, Pliny or Trajan, and around this time that, that are persecuting Christians. We don't know exactly how widespread that is. We don't know if the nature of this is that they're formally being taken to court or things like that. But we know that their life is difficult, and it's difficult because they're following Jesus. And because they've chosen to follow Jesus and experience this suffering, they're losing hope. And so Peter writes them a letter to say, I want you to have hope, and not just have hope, I want you to be able to share the hope that you have. So if you have your Bibles, you can look at 1 Peter chapter 3. If you want to grab one from underneath the pew in front of you, it's on page 1202 is where we're going to be, 1202. 1 Peter chapter 3, and I'm going to begin reading in verse 10, and I'm going to read through verse 15. That's what the scriptures say. For whoever would love life... And would see good days, must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayers. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats and do not be frightened. But in Christ, and this is, I mean, Verse 15 here. This is the key text we're looking at this morning. But in your hearts, revere, or maybe your translation says, set apart Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you for the reason that you have hope. And do this with gentleness and respect. Verse 10 there, as he starts out, is actually he's quoting a psalm. So Peter's probably having his devotionals that morning in Psalm chapter 34. And as he's reading Psalm chapter 34 and he's going to write this church a letter, he includes what it is that God had recently taught him in his own life about how you enter and see good days, which is a reflection on David who's running from Abimelech. I don't have time to look at that, but there's your homework for the week. Psalm 34 is this really rich passage that deals with fear and experiences like that and how God meets us in the middle of our fear. And Peter's probably reflecting on that, at least that's my interpretation, of that as he writes this letter and he calls these people to say, as you enter 2019, do you want to love life? and Do you want to see good days? And if so, what hope is going to carry you through that day or through this year? Um, one of the things that uh, often slows us down from having hope is suffering, so just like this church. And I, so I made a quick list of things that pain and suffering, some of these um, could be more self-inflicted, and it's a scale, so some are more serious than others, but that have happened to people inside of our church since uh, I've been the campus pastor here in the last year. And so I've seen people who have scalded their mouth from drinking tea that was too hot. I've seen people or heard about people who in the ninth inning of the playoffs during the Cubs game, their TV went out because they had, you know, the antenna problems. And it was, I mean, that's like, that's for some people, that's a suffering moment, right? This painful moment to experience that. I've also seen people that have struggled with job issues. The sector that they work in is slowly being phased out, and that creates real challenges. I've seen people that in the middle of church league basketball, they rupture their Achilles, right? That was an unexpected thing that happened. And we've seen people whose aging parents are a long way away. And they're trying to figure out how do we have prolonged care for a mom or for dad from a long way away. And what happens is, is that creates suffering inside of our lives and it creates challenges that are there. there. There's all sorts of different examples that could happen. And what is it that is going to sustain us when those things show up in our life? And Peter is coming in with this word of hope. Now, if you've been around uh, Christ Church for a while, you're used to hearing Mike give sermons 
Um, this is the introduction to the introduction. So now I'm going to give you, I just don't want you to feel like Mike's not here. So this is the real introduction uh, to the sermon before I get to 1 Peter chapter 3. He told me I'm, he's, he's gone, so I can say whatever I want. Um, so as we're making a case for hope, that's what Peter's doing. That's what I'm going to try to do this morning is make a case for hope. Uh, maybe your case for hope in 2019 is, yeah, has to do with the jobs report that came out on Friday, right? And uh, how the market did really well. And how the Fed chair tipped his hand a little bit to where interest rates are going to go. So we're going to be hopeful now in 2019. We're going to start off well because of that, right? Or maybe, it's, maybe you're thinking more on medical things. And you have somebody in your family who's waiting on one of these new research drugs and a big pharma company to release something that they could have a trial and maybe come alongside them and help meet them in the middle of their ailment. Or maybe you're just thinking preventative and you've got a great nutritionist who's going to get all the toxins out and give you the perfect essential oils and your bar instructor is going to help you as you start 2019. And so you're, you're sort of tentatively putting hope in the transformation of your body as you start the year, right? All, all those things can be good. Those, those things can be great. But what Peter is talking about is actually a hope that transcends any given year. He's actually talking about a hope that's, that's below any hope like that. It's, it's a bedrock hope that doesn't have a weight limit to it. It's a hope that can sustain us for our entire lives, not just for a season of our lives. So what Peter says here is he says in verse 15, In your hearts set apart Christ as Lord, and be ready to give a defense or give an apology, give a reason for the hope that you have. So what I want to do for the rest of our time is I want to do, uh, I want us to think about um, three assumptions to having hope. I think, Peter, there's at least three assumptions here to having hope ourselves. And then he shows, or I want to show you, three approaches to sharing that hope. So as he challenges us, I'm going to challenge you this morning, and this is how we're going to do it. So three assumptions to actually having hope um, that Peter's talking about, that God is talking about. The first is that this hope would be something that's internal. So you see that he says, in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord. So the assumption that Peter is making is, if you're going to know this hope, it has to be something that is internal, something that is real to you, something that you experience. God must work in your life in such a way that he moves your heart to where you are a person who has experienced hope. This is something that we as a church are constantly trying to help people do and take steps in. That's why we have spiritual check-ins. That's why we have groups. That's why we regularly stand up and talk about the good news of the gospel. I'm going to wrap back around to this internal aspect of hope here at the end. But I just want you to see at the beginning that what's happening is he's, ex- he's expecting that this audience somehow has been moved by God, has heard the grace of God, and it's caused them to be a people who are hopeful. But it's not just internal, it's also external. There's an assumption it's external. We know that because people are asking them, why do you have the hope that you have? So, <laughs> Here's my attempt at uh, showing how this moves from internal to external. If you love the Bears, if you're a Bears fan, likely in your life you've got some Bears gear, right? You got a hat, you got some shoelaces, you got a jacket. Likely your schedule this afternoon at 340 is not going to be filled with mowing the grass or raking the leaves, right? You're going to be in front of the television. Your life is going to be impacted. The external aspect of your life is going to be impacted by something internally that you love, right? You may have a Gmail account that is BearDownChicago at Gmail, right? Or your license plate's 86SBowl. I, I don't know what it is, but what happens is because you love Super Bowl, you get it? Okay. 
Um, because you love the bears, it works itself out in this public way. It's not just a private thing. It actually shows up in your life at some point. So for some of us, the challenge as we enter this year is that our faith and our hope in God might be something that's only private. And no one's going to see any difference in our life. No one's ever going to see our schedule change or something about the way that we live be different so that they would have a reason to ask us that we have hope. So my challenge to you, for some of you that have more of a private faith, is to allow your faith to impact your life and how you live so that other people would see a difference and ask you why it is that you live that way. So there's an internal aspect, it's an assumption. There's an external assumption. And then thirdly, there's an assumption that some audience that's seeing you live doesn't understand the hope you have. In other words, you must have some approximate distance to people, if you're a Christian, that is, and you follow Jesus, you must have some approximate distance to people who are not like you. Right? This is the challenge uh, to me. Since I've stepped into this role and serve on a church staff now, it's easy for my entire week to be involved with church members and key volunteers and church staff and be at church events and be sitting in my office during the week and studying. And I can run through an entire week without ever being around someone who's not like me. John Stott says that the tendency of most Christian communities is to turn internal and to become a separate circle of life. But here the assumption is that somebody is watching your life, asking you questions because they don't have the same hope that you have. So for some of us, the challenge entering 2019 is that we would intentionally put ourselves and build relationships with people who don't share the same faith commitment that we have so that they can see the hope that we have. There's a, there's a pastor who explains the way this works itself out in, in uh, Christian circles is that he says there's at least four stages. And the first stage is that because you become a Christian or you um, enter into the Christian faith and follow Jesus, you have a set of values. And those values now begin to define you. And those values are different than people that you're around. So stage two is that slowly you find yourself not around people who are not like you because you don't share some of the same values. So stage two is now what happens in stage two is you begin to lose some of those relationships with people not like you. And then stage three says you begin to characterize or maybe mischaracterize and caricature people who aren't like you. And so you don't know them anymore and so you just create false views of how they live and why they live the way they do. And you begin to under, or misunderstand them more and more. And then fourthly, the final stage, when you're totally removed and you don't have those relationships, you actually begin to oppress those people. Christians oftentimes or religions are accused of being oppressive in some way. And, and he's saying this is one of the reasons why that can happen, is that you disengage from people who aren't like you. And because you don't know them, you don't think about their interests when you're making decisions. And we don't think about their interests, you're not loving them. And when you're not loving them, you're not able to do exactly what Peter is saying here, and that is share the hope that you have. So for some of you, like me, maybe that's a challenge. You need to be intentional about loving and building relationships with people who aren't like you. So it could be a slippery, slippery slope. So those are the three assumptions, I think, that are embedded in what Peter says here about having hope and sharing it. It's internal, that it works itself out externally, and that it's around an audience. Uh, You're approximate to um, those that are not carrying the hope you have. Now, If we're going to share that faith, I want to give you three approaches. And the reason I'm doing these three approaches is because the Explore God series for the next seven weeks 
is actually, we're, we're going to uh, include each one of these as we do this. And so there's an objective argument or defense that's made. There's more of a subjective aspect to it, our own stories. And then finally, there's a communal aspect to it. So these, here's three approaches. And when Peter writes this and he says you need to be prepared to give a defense, this word here is the word apologia, which is the word for we use for apology, right? So this isn't uniquely Christian. In uh, Greek context, like Plato wrote an apology to defend Socrates at that time. So it's just a great word. My, my kids are here now. I don't know if they're actually listening, but if they were, this ruins parenting because now when I say apologize to your sister, they're going to turn into little lawyers and they're going to defend themselves to their sister and not actually say that I'm sorry for what is undone. But this word here, apology, is meaning to give a defense for the hope that you have. And so you have an objective way to do that where you philosophically, scientifically, sociologically begin to defend the Christian faith. And the Christian faith is not scared of those questions in any way. And we're going to try to tackle those questions throughout the series at a high level. What are the hardest questions and how can we think as deeply as possible about it? And I'd encourage you uh, to enter into that. If you've never read a book on something like this, check out Tim Keller's Reason for God. Check out Mere Christianity. I would say those are two fantastic ways uh, to start. It's a good thing to start in your new year to objectively begin to understand the hope that we have. Subjectively, sharing it this way that is just telling your own story. And this sometimes, number one, can be very um, intimidating. I don't want anybody to come up to me and ask me all those questions, right? I don't want to have to give the cosmological argument for why it is it's true or the ontological argument for the existence of God. I can't do that. But what we can do is what the guy in John chapter 9 does when he's asked about Jesus. He says, well, I don't know the answers to those questions, but I know I used to be blind, and now I can see. He just tells his story. And for many of us, that's the most compelling and transforming thing to those around us. And that is, I used to be somebody who used the people around me, who climbed as fast as I could, took credit for things that weren't mine so that I could achieve things, but then I met Jesus, and now I'm trying to learn how to serve others and empower those that are around me. Some of us say that I used to live a life of pride and I thought really high of who I was and I did better things than those around me and then I met Jesus and I realized, oh my goodness, I'm never going to meet the standard that God has for me and I desperately need God's grace. I'm not full of pride anymore. I'm just asking God for mercy. My heart has been changed and so because of that, my life is different. I share my story, my subjective experience with who God is, how he's changed my life. That's one of the approaches we're going to be doing. And it's one of the reasons I encourage you to get involved in a discussion group. Because those discussion groups are places where you can share your story and you can invite your neighbors to come in and hear how it is that God has worked out in your life. And maybe those things aren't buttoned up perfectly. That's okay. Just the fact that we're sharing those things is a big deal. And the third approach, besides it being at a high level, objectively, our own experiences, is at a communal level. When the early church first started, so Jesus dies on the cross, he's resurrected, he overcomes death, and then he, he ascends to heaven. What happens with the churches that start meeting everywhere is they begin to come, become these pictures of the love that God has for his children. And all of a sudden you see people who should not be getting along that are different socioeconomic statuses, that are different, different races, different backgrounds, different national origins, and they shouldn't come together, but they're coming together. And they're sharing the things they have together. 
and they're sacrificing for one another. And what happens is you see this, this picture of a community that's existing where the people who are living around them are asking, why in the world are those people functioning that way? God has given us the church to be that picture to those so that they can see the way that his love has transformed our lives and actually builds a community together. The story I told you at the beginning, uh, this couple, Rosario Butterfield and her husband, Kent. When they came back from the burglary and were in their home that afternoon, is they ended up calling somebody inside the church. And she writes this in the, in the middle of this chapter, and she says that what happened is those people inside their church immediately dropped what was going on. Some of the professional people dropped their commitments that evening and drove to their home. And some other people came and they brought dinner to just, just to be around them and to care for them. And then people strapped on rubber gloves and they got on their hands and knees and they completely cleaned the house. And they put things back in the drawers and organized it and they tried to love on the kids in the middle of this traumatic experience. And what happened is this, the Butterfield family experienced the love of God in the community of God. And this was, this was such a moving thing that what Kent, the dad, here in the story did is he got his phone out and he posted on the neighborhood app. And he said three things. He said this. He said, <clears throat> number one, we have been robbed. I wanted people in the neighborhood to know that. There was a burglary. So we've been robbed. Number two, we're okay. They took a lot of stuff, but they didn't take anything that was eternal. And number three, Sunday afternoon at 3 o'clock, we're going to be hosting a party in our front yard, burgers and dogs. We'd love for you to join us. So what happened is this couple experienced the love of the community to themselves, and then they wanted to extend it to others. Because when your neighbors get burglarized, it actually impacts you as well. So he creates a safe space, practices the very hospitality they've been writing about in this book, and invite their neighbors over. And 21 people from the neighborhood showed up to their house Sunday afternoon to process this injustice, right? This violation that they had experienced, not just individually, but communally. And because the people who had come to their house to care for them that night knew about it, they also showed up in the front yard. And this is what he wrote. He said this, And when our unbelieving and our skeptical neighbors asked how we were holding up, my husband Kent was able to share the hope that we had. He was able to share the gospel, and it was with a new legitimacy. Because where God is in your loss matters more to a doubting and a cynical world than where God is in your plenty. Let me say it again. She says, where God is in your loss matters more to a doubting and a cynical world than where God is in your plenty. The suffering that they underwent at this time allowed them, actually provided this platform for them to talk about the hope they have that is the hope below the hopes that we have. It's the hope that's at the bedrock level that sustains us 2,000 years ago to this church that Peter's writing to, to where I can stand up and talk about it again with you today. And the reason for that is that it's a hope based on a historical event that's already happened, a final event of, that God has worked in this world. If we keep reading in 1 Peter, just three verses later in verse 18, it says that when you're doing this, when you're displaying this hope to others, you're acting like Jesus, who... In verse 18, for Christ also suffered. He suffered. He suffered for our sins once for all. The righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God. He was put to death in the flesh, but he was made alive in the spirit. 
And in verse 22 it says, Now he sits at the right hand of God, and all rulers and authority on heaven and earth submit to Jesus. He has, we have hope because of the finished work of Christ. We sing a song that goes like this, My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. That is the hope that's going to sustain us and drive us into the new year. And Peter's telling us not just to keep it for ourselves, but to share it with others. We'd love for you to invite people to be a part of Explore God. That's one way to do it. That's not the way you have to do it, but it's certainly an, op- it's an option. So maybe you, want to, maybe you want to jump in on one of those groups. Tuesday night, 6.30 upstairs. I've mentioned this, but my wife and I are hosting a group. If that works for you, there's a meal that night. We've got child care, so love for you to come and be with us here at the church. But if not, the website has lots and lots of opportunities for this. As we close this morning, though, I want to say one more thing. That is that the church collectively has an experience of hope that we, um, that we participate in together. As you see in the front, we have uh, communion set up. So in just a moment, Anson's going to come and lead us during a time of communion. And this meal is a meal of hope. Because when Jesus shares it first with the disciples, he says, we're going to have this meal again one day. Because I'm coming back and we're going to share in this feast. And so as we take communion, just allow communion to be an experience to you to infuse hope inside of your life and to remind you why it is uh, that you follow God. And if you don't know God, allow this to be a challenge to you. And ask, where do you find your hope? When we enter 2019, when suffering comes, what are you going to stand on? What's going to be there for you? Let me pray. Father, we, like uh, the psalmist wrote there, we want to love life and we want to see good days. And we know that to do that, we have to have a life that's built on something more than us, something that's more than the up and down of the market, something that's more than our own health, than our own family, than our own nutrition. God, it has to be bigger than that. And so um, we, we pray that you would move us individually and as a community together uh, to rely on you and to know the hope that you offer in Christ and to believe that we don't have to be good enough, but that Jesus was good enough and he offers uh, his righteousness to us, that he died so that we wouldn't have to. He experienced uh, death and then he overcame death with life and he offers life to us. So infuse us with that hope we pray this morning. Bless us as we continue in this service in Jesus' name.